Our scripture reading this morning is in the book of Genesis. We're going to start in chapter 39, verse 21, and go through chapter 40, verse 23. It may be wrong in your program. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of uh, Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Amen. You may be seated. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to someone who has become uh, an absolute dear friend of mine. Uh, His name is Dave Seville, um, and he's a a minister in the gospel over in 
the great city of Tampa, but he has bravely crossed the bridge today uh, to bring us the good news through the difficult story of Joseph in the dungeon. Um, and so I want to turn this over to, to uh, Dave this morning and uh, tell you that we as pastors deeply guard and, and are careful about this pulpit uh, because of how we view the Scriptures, um, and I have absolutely no reservations uh, to turn this thing completely over to Dave this morning. So please give him your full attention. Brother Dave, come on up. I think your pastor just said that I'm not supposed to say anything heretical this morning. That's a lot of pressure right there. Don't screw it up right before you get up to talk. Thank you, Derek. I appreciate that. It's nice being with you guys. Every time I get in front of a new group of people, faces that I don't know, I have this little mental imagination thing that I do. You know, friends in your life that you have gotten to know so well that you can't remember what life was like before you met them. You realize that even though we're strangers now, there is going to be a day when you look at this mug and you're like, I can barely remember a time when I didn't know him because we get to worship in heaven together and we have more to look forward than just one worship service. So, hello strangers. Hello new friends. There's going to be a day of rich fellowship ahead of us. I'm bringing you a, a familiar story if you've been in church more than 10 minutes of your life. It's Joseph when he's in the prison where he is interpreting some dreams of some Egyptian court officials. But in case you haven't been in church in a while and some of the contours of the story are unfamiliar, let me just give you some rudimentary background information and then maybe we can make sense out of the passage together. If you remember or don't, Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. Father Abraham, the patriarch. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph is the son of Jacob. And Jacob, in his life, favored his son Joseph so much that he alienated all of his other sons so badly that in giving a special gift to his son Joseph, this coat of many colors, the other brothers stripped it off of him, threw him into a pit, trying to decide if they were going to kill him, changed their mind at the last minute, and just decided to sell him instead to some Midianites who would carry him off to Egypt at the tender age of 17. Bye, Joseph. We're never going to see you again. Glad you're out of our hair. Cool. Man, that's a rough turn of events for a 17-year-old. While he is in captivity in Egypt, Potiphar's wife, the household to which he gets sold, she gets the hots for him. I mean, he is a nice-looking, well-built guy, and she keeps saying, hey, young man, uh, come join me in bed. And he keeps saying, no, 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 no. This is not what God wants. And she goes, yes, 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 this is what I want. Stop that. He refuses long enough that she has enough of this and falsely accuses him, and then he gets thrown into a worse prison, deeper in a hole. And every time he progresses, the story is faithful to record for us that God is with Joseph. He prospers, like he goes into these horrible positions, but then he sort of gets elevated in whatever cesspool he's in and rises to the top. And God is with him and gives him favor. That's an interesting twist to the story. 
We all want stories to turn out happily. We want them to go well. Joseph is in prison at the beginning of the story. Guess where he is at the end of the story? In prison. Like nothing changes. So we want to focus on the dreams and talk about, oh, well, maybe God has things to say to us in dreams, and maybe this passage is about dreams and dream interpretations. It's not really. It concerns dreams, but it's not about dreams. This passage is about God shaping us in the pit and how he is with us and forms us and doesn't leave us. And honestly, the questions I have are, really, God, do you do stuff like this? Because I don't like it, and I don't want you to do stuff I don't like, but he does. He has this way about him where he shapes us regardless of our preferences, regardless of what we think needs to happen to our lives. Now, I don't know if you read passages twice in your worship services, but I'm going to because, number one, sometimes I don't listen the first time a passage is read. This is just my guilty little secret. I have a hard time paying attention. Number two, this is the very best part of the sermon right here, just reading it straight out of God's word. So... We're going to go old school right here. I don't even want you to open your Bibles, okay? We're going to pretend like you don't have your smartphones and whatever else. I just want you to listen to this story about a young man who has gotten thrown into successively deeper pits. He's facing injustice. He's wondering where God is, if God's going to help. And let's hear what happens to this man. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him, he granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. After this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant And they were in custody for some time. The king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker, who were confined in the prison, each had a dream. Both had a dream on the same night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We had dreams, they said to him, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream, there was a vine in front of me. On the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossoms. its blossoms came out, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. 
This is its interpretation, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were, in, you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by, by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews and even here I've done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head and the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is its interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off you and hang you on a tree. Then the birds will eat the flesh from your body. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Well, there's a real pick-me-up of a story out of the Bible, isn't it? He starts off in prison. He ends up in prison. You're allowed to laugh. It's church. You can also breathe and nod your head. If I say something that's confusing, you can scowl at me. I'll know you're alive that way. It'll help me. Rather than focusing on the dreams, what I want to do this morning is focus on just five of the details out of this story and think about them a little bit from Joseph's perspective. What do these five details mean to Joseph? But here's the thing about Joseph. The dude drives me nuts a little bit because he's so good. Like he is morally upright. He's smart. He's wise. He's capable. And I feel like a knucklehead. Off you go. Bye, sir. That's kid number four out of four, in case you were wondering. That's mine. Bye. I won't embarrass you anymore. I have a hard time relating to Joseph. So, I want to consider the details from Joseph's perspective, but I also want to consider them from our perspective a little bit too, and see if we can be honest about how things would feel. And then I want to consider the same details, how God might intend them for us. So, Joseph, us, then God. Does this make sense? The five details, just so you can mark them in your passage if you want. Number one, God was with Joseph. What in the world does that mean? Does it make a difference? That's in uh, chapter 39, verses 21 and 23. Then the detail, sometime after this. Boy, there is a phrase that is loaded, if you ask me. Joseph saying, tell me the dreams, in chapter 40, verse 8. The detail where he says, get me out of this prison, and the one where the cupbearer forgot him. Does this make sense where we're going? This is yes, this is no. Okay, good. 
Joseph has God with him. The story talks about this all through Joseph's life, but certainly in in chapter 39, verses 21 and 23, the Lord was with him. The Lord prospered him in whatever he did. I just want to ask the question, what does this feel like? What's this like for Joseph when God was with him? I mean, when we have believers who are hurting, sometimes we will look at them, at them and say, what, God's with you? Buck up. God's with you. And he is. He's with us. But how is it supposed to feel? How does Joseph feel when he's in Pharaoh's prison? I think we're allowed to use our imagination just a little bit. What is an Egyptian prison dungeon like? 4,000 years ago. If Pharaoh's ticked at you enough for you to get thrown into his prison, I imagine that Pharaoh's prison doesn't mean that it's the top-end, high-luxury prison. I think if you tick off the king, you're probably going to feel it. I'm guessing that 4,000 years ago, they didn't have electricity and fluorescent lights and mattresses or kitchens where they made three meals a day for their prisoners, what's it like in Pharaoh's dungeon? If you're in there sleeping on cold concrete cement floors, limestone floors, and it smells bad, and there's rats, and the worst of the worst prisoners What does it feel like to have God with you in the prison? Is it supposed to make you excited about being there? Is it supposed to change how you feel? Think about your own life just for a second. When you get into those miserable, terrible, awful circumstances of life and somebody comes to you and goes, God's with you, does it magically Like bippity-boppity-boo, make it better for you. No, it doesn't. I think one thing that Scripture is emphasizing for us is that regardless how it feels in your life, God is with His children. Regardless of how it feels. You can't judge by how your internal compass experiences things to gauge whether or not God is with you. The Lord is with Joseph regardless of how he's feeling. And the text doesn't say, I'm just saying I would be a disaster area, a self-pitying, mopey, miserable, sad prisoner. How does it feel when God is with us? Detail number two, chapter 40, verse 1. My version, the CSB, just says, after this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and the baker offended their master. After this, meaning, as near as I understand it, as we're telling a story, something happened, and then the next thing that happened came after this. But in the ESV, which you had read to you this morning, did you hear what it said? The text said, some time after this. Oh, that's different. Kids, uh, we're going to go eat dinner, and then after this, we're going to play a family game. Next. 
Kids, we're going to eat dinner, and then sometime after this, we're going to get around to what you want to do. Oh, kids are going to go, oh, you're kidding me. This is going to take forever. I know you. This is going to be like next week, isn't it? Sometime after this indicates that we don't really know how long this has been, but it could be an awful long time. And again, just to use our imaginations for a second... This is Bible trivia now. This is for you scholars. Here's your question. Do you remember how old Joseph was when he went into slavery? I told you this already. That's cheating. He's 17. Here's the tricky question. Do you remember how old he was when he finally stood in front of Pharaoh later in his story to interpret Pharaoh's dreams? Because Joseph has a destination, he has a providential appointment with Pharaoh where he will be standing in front of Pharaoh interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. Do you know how old he was there? 30. He's 30. I'm an English major, but I'm pretty sure that 30 minus 17 is 13 years. From the time he gets sold into slavery to the time he's standing in front of Pharaoh is 13 years text doesn't say how long he's in Potiphar's house, but it's long enough for Potiphar to trust him, long enough for Potiphar's wife to get the hots for him, long enough for her to be hitting on him and him aggravate her with his repeated refusals. How long is he in Potiphar's house? A year, two, three, four, I don't know, three-ish, let's say. That leaves ten years, folks. Ten years sometime after this? How long has Joseph been in a dungeon anyway? I don't like 10 years in a dungeon. I'm glad God is with me. I'm glad that the prison guard trusts me with all of these people, but I don't like 10 years. Sometime after this. How does this feel to you when God pulls this maneuver in your life? I was going along doing just fine, thank you very much. Then you interrupted my life. You started throwing curveballs, gave me something that I didn't like. And then sometime after this, the next thing happened. I tell you what, if I pray for something twice, I start to get impatient. If I have to wait three weeks for God to do something, I'm like, you're never showing up, are you? You've totally forgotten me. Here's a dude who's maybe 10 years in a prison, sometime after this. What are you doing, God? Do you feel this? It drives me nuts that God tells stories in our lives like this where we wait and we wonder. And it feels like our lives have gone off the rails, but sometime after this... God brought these events to pass in Joseph's life. Detail three. These two court officials come to Joseph and they're like, we're distressed, we've had a dream. And Joseph says, tell me your dreams. They're not going to tell him their dreams until this invitation because do you know who interprets dreams? It's all the wise men who were back there in Pharaoh's court. 
These guys have been around Pharaoh and been around the way things work in Egypt. And all the wise men are gathered around Pharaoh. So if you have a dream which means something, you go to those guys. But we're stuck here. What are we supposed to do? There's nobody to interpret our dreams. And Joseph says, incredibly, in this demonstration of faith, which I can barely relate to, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me. What? I mean, good work, Joseph. That's unbelievable. But I have a hard time mustering this kind of faith. But he does. God is here. God is at work. God's got this. I myself would just be glad to hear about some dreams because I'd be bored in an Egyptian prison where there's no cable television. So at least we've got some entertainment. But not Joseph. God's on the move. Detail four. Chapter 40, verse 14. After he's interpreted the cupbearer's dream, God's going to restore you. He's going to put you back in Pharaoh's court. When God does what I just interpreted about your dream, when he does all that, I want you to remember me because I'm suffering injustice. I don't belong here. I got stolen away from home. He starts to tell some of the sad story of his life. I want out of here. Get me out, please. I want you to feel this. Sometime after, how big of a sensation is this welling up from Joseph's guts? Okay, he's faithful. Okay, he trusts God. But does that mean that he should be happy about where he's at? Oh, God, I'm just so, so content in your plans that I'm just good with whatever you've got because this is how faith looks. No way. God, I see you on the move. Uh, I'm going to be wise. I'm going to give a message to this cupbearer to get me out. I don't like this here. I'm going to give you the full weight of my experience so that you know what this is like. God, this, this stinks to be in here. And if I were Joseph, again, I would be more mopey and more miserable yet. Because if you remember the story... You will remember how God has been promising blessing through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and through this family. God has given his promises to this group of people. I will bless the world through your family. So what must Joseph be thinking if his family is way back there in Egypt, back home, everybody's together, and I'm stuck here in an Egyptian prison? Can you feel this? God's blessings and promises, God's, God's promise train has left without me, and I got dumped here. So if I could just figure out how to get back on track, get back into sync with whatever God is obviously doing with my family, that would be sweet. I'd like that very much, because this, this probably isn't it. That's me. Did I miss the promise train? Get me out. Last detail. So the cupbearer did exactly that. I mean, he'd seen some, interp some dreams interpreted, right? This dramatic turn of events where he got out of prison, where the baker also got killed just like Joseph said. So, like, 
two days later, three days, 72 hours later, that's not all that long when he's standing in front of Pharaoh, it's going to strike his mind, right? Where was I 72 hours ago? No, he forgets. That's crazy to me, except that I forget all kinds of stuff. But how's Joseph? If you're Joseph and you're watching the clock that doesn't exist yet because it's not been invented for another 2,500 years or so, but as you're watching the clock and 72 hours goes by and you know that the guy that you just said, you're going to be in front of Pharaoh again, remember me so that I can get out of here, how long are you waiting until you're waiting for news to come back that you're out of prison? Me? It's going to be 72 hours and 10 minutes. All right, 11 minutes. 12. All right, half hour. Okay, I can, maybe it'll take three hours. That was Holy Ghost. Does it take three hours? Does it take two days? When it's three days, how's he feeling? All right, maybe it takes a little bit. Maybe he's waiting for the right time. How long before Joseph begins to suspect that nobody's coming? A week? A month? Do you know how long Joseph was in prison before somebody came to get him? You got the Bible open in front of you? What does the next verse say? At the end of two years... Pharaoh had a dream. What? Two years? God, I thought these guys showing up in a prison from Pharaoh and sending them back was like your version of breaking into this story and getting me out of here. Two years? Are you kidding me? What's up with this? This stinks. Are we allowed to talk to God like this? Are we going to get struck by a lightning bolt if we get honest with God? No, we're not. We've talked about these details from Joseph's perspective and from our perspective. I just want to very briefly consider them from God's perspective too. And here's the reason I saved it for last. Because sometimes when people are in miserable circumstances, as Christians we have a habit of taking band-aids of truth and slapping them on people's wounds God's with you. Sometimes God takes a while. Be patient. Uh, God hasn't forgotten, I promise. Instead of bandaging their wounds, we end up smacking it on there and reopening their wounds. So, if you apply these truths to your brothers and sisters, which you should, apply these truths with grace and gentleness in a way that honors the story that they've been through. Ten years is a long time in prison. Ten years is a long time to be without a spouse. Ten years is a long time to be grieving the loss of somebody. Ten years is a long time to be waiting on kids. Ten years is a long time to be wrestling with the Lord about this sin struggle that I just can't seem to climb on top of. Ten years is a long time. So as you apply these truths to your brothers and sisters, do so with grace and gentleness. Yes? What's God have to say about some of these details? 
When it says that God is with Joseph, I honestly think that what God means to communicate is as your father and as your physician, there isn't anywhere else in the world I would be. I am so with you, you couldn't get me out of here. Here's why I think this. You just met kid four of four. Kid three of four has spent an enormous amount of time at All Children's Hospital. An enormous amount of time. When he was born, he was supposed to die within minutes. He's 12. 13? I can't remember. There's too many of them. He's 12 or 13. But he went through heart surgeries and heart transplants and resurgeries and drainage things and then seizures and then stomach emergencies and it was a nightmare. And when your kid is lying in the hospital bed with another procedure getting ready to happen or an open chest wound that straight up hurts and is crying, I want to go home. Just can we go home, please? And I go, I have to say to him, no, we can't go home. It's not because I'm cruel, but because he needs to be there. But where else in the world would I be? That's my boy in the hospital, hurting. Wild horses couldn't drag me from that bedside. Do you feel that? So, if you are up to your eyeballs in the pain and sorrow and suffering of life, and God says, I am with you as your father, he's saying, where else do you want me to be? My heart is so with you and for you, you couldn't make me leave. In addition to that, I'm not just father, I'm also physician, your healer, who's not just being capricious and cutting on you because I like it, it's because I'm applying the best medicine to you. No one will heal you like I do, so you can't make me leave. I am with you, and I am healing you. What does the text mean to God when he says, I am with you? Do you feel that? That's different than how we think. Oh, well, it's supposed to feel great. No, it's not. But there is some reassurance that you have a father who will never, ever leave your bedside. What does God mean when he says sometime after this? When he says 10 years, another two years, uh, hey, I know you're waiting, but sometime after this. Does it mean God is reading the newspaper? Does it mean he's catching up on Netflix? Does it mean that he's interested in the church in Korea, but not your life? You know this verse, this one drives me crazy too. With God, a day is like, this is where you talk, a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. That verse drives me nuts. A thousand years? Really? Because in 50, I'm going to be an extremely old man if I'm alive. In 60, I'm probably going to be dead. In 500 years, I'm going to be dead, buried, and dust a day is like a thousand years? Thanks. Thanks for that. What gives? 
What does God mean when he says sometime after this? Part of what I think he means is that, yeah, your life may last 50 more years or five more minutes. You might be turned to dust, but I am still faithful, and I never forget, and I still have promises and purposes that I'm working on, so when you're dead and buried and gone and forgotten because there's been seven generations after you and they don't remember your name anymore, I remember your name. I remember what I was doing in your life. I remember the promises that I made to you through Jesus. I will be faithful to my purposes because I last and you don't. Sometime after this. It might be sometime after this. But God says, look at me. Not just your life. Look at me because I will be faithful. What does God mean? For us to understand about this passage, when we see Joseph saying, get me out. Does God give us this detail as if to say, Joseph, I mean, it's fine if you want to talk this way a little bit, but don't do it too much. Don't be too honest, because I have big purposes and you need to get in line with those. Is that what he means? The reason I put the question to you this way is because this is how you think about your life. If I just learn to be patient or to be good like Joseph, if I could just do what the Bible said or learn my lesson, if I could just fill in the blank, then God would get me out. But in the meantime, I kind of have to keep shiny plastic Christian on our faces. Hey, how you doing this morning? Welcome to church. Welcome to Stonehouse Church. How are you? I'm fine. Are you? Welcome to Stonehouse Church. How are you? I'm good. Good. Just good. Are you? Are we in this community allowed to be like vulnerable or honest? That it's not that we're good, it's that it stinks that it's hard, that it's miserable, that it feels God-forsaken, that I'm in up to my eyeballs. Get me out of this mess. I hate this. I hate my job. I hate my marriage. I hate my kids. I hate waiting. I hate poverty. I hate whatever. Are we allowed to talk like this in church? Heaven help us. Yes, please. Because sometimes we look around at church and we act like the all-stars are the people up here talking or up here leading worship. Do you know who God says the spiritual all-stars are? Those who mourn. Those who wait. Those who are guilty and miserable and doubters. Is this true or am I making this up? You've gotten very still on me. Is this true that the doubters and the strugglers are the all-stars? Who does Jesus gravitate towards? It's the sick and the broken and the needy. He doesn't come to the self-sufficient and the strong. So the all-stars in this church, the ones who will usher us into the presence of Jesus, the quickest, are going to be the ones who have been broken into the itty-bittiest little pieces. 
Remember the story about the paralytic who uh, had four friends carry him to Jesus and they dug through the hole in the roof? They weren't going to get to Jesus on their own. The crowd was too big. How did they get to Jesus? Because they brought the paralytic with them. Who are the all-stars in this church? Who are the ones who are going to get us to Jesus? The ones who can't get their stuff together. The ones who feel the most downtrodden. Those are the ones that Jesus gravitates towards the most. So please, for the love, be honest. Talk about it here. Let's be straight with one another. Because you belong here in the presence of Jesus. What time did we start? What time did I start quacking? I can't remember. Can I have five minutes? Can I have six minutes? Seven? No, I'm just kidding. One question I kind of want to ask, just since we're thinking about brokenness and downtroddenness, because this starts to get a little close to my life, is if Joseph spent 10 years in prison or more, were those 10 years significant? Because all we've got in this story is the record of some pretty dramatic events. Pretty big stuff happened in this chapter. But it's the only story out of a 10-year span. And that feels an awful lot like my life. So that if something majorly spiritual isn't happening to me, and I feel like I've been on a 10-year detour, are those 10 years significant? Do they matter to God? Did I make a mistake to get here? If I just got my act together, would I be back on track and in God's purposes? Do you know this sensation? How long does a detour have to be anyway, God, before it stops being a detour and is just my life? I didn't think I was going to end up here. I didn't think my life was going to go this way. I'm hoping it's just a detour, but it's been such a stinking long time. Is there an on-ramp back onto the expressway to glory land? What's the deal? Are the years significant to God? Are they? The answer in God's economy is yes. The years of your life right now, while you wait and wonder and are confused and are overwhelmed and are grieving, these moments are significant to God because He is forming something in you that you haven't seen yet. And I want to give you this illustration to close. Because when we are saying, get me out, and it feels like the detour has been long, and we feel forgotten. Remember that detail, he forgot him? Have you ever felt forgotten by God? Have you? Have your promises failed? Have you forgotten to be kind? What happens if it feels like God is the one who forgets you? What is he doing anyway? Here's a word picture. Because I was watching this dumb documentary on Netflix 
I wish I could say it was much cooler than it was because if it was MMA or involved Rambo or something, I feel like I would be a lot more macho, but the documentary I was watching, because I'm me, is I was watching a documentary on the history of winemaking. I know. Go ahead. Be disappointed. I feel it. I feel your disappointment. Filmmakers were going and they were uh, over in Europe and they were speaking to winemakers who'd had these vineyards for generations so that my vineyard belonged not just to my dad and my granddad, but my great-granddad and a few more generations before that. And so these were guys who had worked the land since they were kids and they knew every rock and hill and valley and every acre, every inch of land was theirs. And so they could talk wine, baby. These guys could talk about how uh, when you get out wine, you can uh, smell certain notes. And so this is the gesture for all wine connoisseurs where they smell it and they're like, oh, yeah, you can smell the lilac and you can smell the lavender. And when you taste it and smell it, oh, it's these buttery notes. Okay, yeah, you got it. There was a scene in which... Uh, the filmmakers, I don't know how they talked the guy into it, took him down into his cellar, and it was an old European cellar, not like this modern deal where you're walking down with fluorescent lights down these steps with wood-paneled walls and wainscoting. This was not it. This is more like medieval 15th century. We're walking down into this cavern where there's slime growing on the walls, and there were these racks of wine bottles. And they talked a guy into opening a bottle that his granddad had put up and laid there before this guy was born. And so there's only like 80 bottles left in the world. And they were like, would you open one? I don't know how they talked him. And he's like, okay, I'll open it. So on camera, here's this guy talking about the history of how uh, the year before, this wine had been put up. There was a terrible drought, and they'd lost all their grapes, and so there was nothing out there. But this year, the rain had been super steady and heavy, and his granddad put this up. And so it was like the land just erupted in grapes. And so he pulls out, the, he pulls out this wine bottle like he's delivering a baby and holds this thing, carefully takes off the top, and as he's talking about it, you can kind of see him thinking about his granddad. And he pours this wine, which looked like it was syrup. It was so old. But the color was perfect. And he goes, look at this. This is just perfect. Aging has been perfect. And he said, I've tasted this like twice before in my life. And he does this thing. Oh, man. You can smell all of the different foliage that was in bloom 60, 80 years ago when you do, and when you take, he takes a sip and he goes, you can taste, oh, you can taste the acidity and the sweetness and if you, if you hold it in your mouth, you can even taste the minerals and some of the charcoal in the earth and I'm like, he can taste the charcoal and that's weird, but okay, this guy is transported to another place. And then he turns and hands it to his son who's coming after him. And it's like these two guys are having a worship service, drinking this little taste of wine. How do you make wine? Well, you grow grapes and you pick grapes and you crush grapes and you bottle the grape juice and you ferment it and you store it. 
and you put it on a shelf, maybe in your cellar, maybe that looks like a 15th century catacomb, and you leave it there for a quick 50 or 60 or 80 years so that when the winemaker gets this bottle out, he goes, you will not believe what went into this. You can taste the lilac and you can smell the sorrow. You can taste in my wine how this person has had to wait for a spouse longer than they ever wanted to because God is making us into wine people. And he'll say, you can taste and smell the grace and the redemption because the year before there was death. But oh my word, look at this, experience this. And I put them on the shelf and matured them into wine that shows off my glory and goodness. Nobody else could have done it like this. Nobody else is like this. I have other bottles. They taste differently. But this one, mm. it's my vintage Nate. It's my vintage Rachel. This is what I did. There's nothing like this in the world. When it feels like God has forgotten you, when it feels like him being with you is worthless, He's making us wine because Jesus himself has been crushed for us and in our place so that we can be at the banquet table. This is a message that will change your whole life. It is trustworthy and reliable. Look at what happens to Joseph next. Look at what happens to Jesus after he hangs on a cross. Does he stay in a tomb? Will you? No. Something good is coming. You can believe this. Let's pray. King Jesus, sometimes you stretch our imaginations so that we get a little bit outside of how we normally talk and think and it feels good to us because you are smart and clever and creative and good and sometimes, yes, we get impatient with our lives and we feel miserable and we are broken by our sins and weighed down. Have mercy on us as we watch and as we wait and as we are put on a shelf and you are making us whine and say, all right, a thousand more years. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on us as your children. Fix our eyes on you. Help us to drink your goodness so that we can be looking forward to the banquet table that you set. Make us into some fine vintage, Jesus. That would be precious. In your name we pray. Amen.